Deep in the imagination, there's a crossroads, a space where curiosity and inspiration intersect and give birth to ideas. A space where music, science fiction, comic books, and pop culture inform the mind of what is and what could be. This is Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. In each episode, legendary journalist Jeff Boucher welcomes the biggest names in genre entertainment for an expansive dive into all things pop culture. Journey with Jeff as he explores the latest news and recommendations of the hottest releases across entertainment with his most trusted confidants. You are now entering deep space. Heavy Metal presents Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. Welcome to Mindspace. This is Jeff Boucher. I'm here with Evan. How are you, Evan? Good, Jeff. How are you? I'm doing well, man. I'm doing well. Um, this should be uh, a very special show for us. This is already a very special show for us. It's your last show. Um, as people know, um, you've been you've been a fugitive from justice for years, but now <laughs> finally they've tracked you down. No, yeah. uh, Evan's leaving us for... Um, we don't have to say, but big things in television, uh, hopefully, and great things, good opportunity. Um, and we'll miss you. And this is a great episode as a send off uh, because we have great guests, we have a little special surprise, so it should be kind of cool. But uh, how are you feeling about all that? Oh man, I'm really excited. You know, we had talked a little bit last week about making that my last show, but you know, and then we booked another guest and I went, you know what, I think I might stay on one more week and, uh, you know, you know, get to meet this guy. Uh, but you know, a lot of crazy things have happened this week. You know, uh, we've talked about it a little bit, you know, inauguration happened. I mean, this will come out on Tuesday and that already happened. But you know, something else that was really interesting is you were getting a little bit of buzz, weren't you? Because of the Phil Spector thing. Oh yeah. Phil Spector. Yeah. The, um, it was quite the week with uh, all the uh, history-making events in Washington and um, and COVID. Uh, uh, you know, the history of COVID will include some famous names, and now that list includes Phil Spector, who was the uh, uh, you know uh, long-time, very successful, iconic record producer, uh, and then later notorious um, uh, murder suspect, and then uh, convicted murderer. Uh, for the, the 2003 uh, shooting death of uh, Lana Clarkson. And um, yeah, Evan, you're right. It was a busy week for me because I, as you know, and uh, maybe some of our or listeners know, I used to write for the LA Times. I wrote for the LA Times for 21 years and had about 2,800 stories published uh, in the print edition. And I, I started there when I was 21 and I worked there till I was 42. So it was literally half my life uh, when I walked out the door um, to, to go do magazine work. And um, one of the things that I covered there, um, I covered crime uh, for about six or seven years. I covered music, uh, the industry and, and popular culture uh, for about seven years and then film for about seven years. Um, and uh, there was one, there's many cases, I, uh, many stories I covered that brought multiple things together and Phil Spector was, one of the big ones. Uh, so I was the music writer uh, for the calendar section at the times when he um, uh, was arrested at his uh, faux Pyrenees castle in Alhambra and um, actually went out there the, the night of the, the crime. Um, so I'm, you know, uh, being taken away 
in fact, and then uh, I wrote the lead story that day and, and uh, with, uh, with colleagues covered it. And uh, that, that went on for weeks covering the case. And, and uh, uh, there was two trials. And as you know, a lot of people know, he eventually in 2009 got convicted and uh, went to prison, but he died uh, this, in, this past weekend. So I got calls from uh, radio and, and TV and different uh, media doing things about his legacy, uh, the, you know, the music that he did, the people he worked with, you know, from the Ramones to John Lennon, um, Darlene Love and uh, so many more, uh, the Beatles. Uh, so talking about the, his music and also his, uh, you know, darker aspects of his personality, his temper, his gun collection, and and finally his uh, his uh, murder, uh, second degree murder of an uh, actress named Lana Clarkson, who uh, he had met just a few hours before that. So that's the a very long answer to your question, Kevin. Yes, it was a I was back in Phil Spector mode, um, which I. I hadn't been in a while, although there's uh, um, so there's a series um, on uh, Oxygen. It's it aired just recently. And it's called Real Murders of Orange County, uh, true crime show as Oxygen uh, has so many of. And uh, I'm, in, I'm featured in four episodes because the trials and uh, murders and, uh, that I covered back in the 90s uh, when I was a crime reporter at the LA Times. So uh, if anybody wants to see that side of, of my journalism career, uh, I know I'm in the, the first episode, which is uh, the pilot uh, is about uh, one of the most famous Southern California murders in recent generations, but uh, the Jane Carver murder in, in Fountain Valley. And again, I was on the scene of that, that, uh, that crime the day of. So, um, you know, I know the Phil Spector stuff is kind of interesting for you because it was kind of a crossroads for your career, right? You had been doing crime, and but you'd also been kind of covering music and surprisingly, shockingly, you know, this case kind of allowed you to cross both sides of your career. Yeah, well, that's a good point. It, it certainly did. I, I had been, um, I, I was a crime reporter uh, in the 90s and then switched over in 98, uh, 99, 98, really late 98 to the calendar section and became the pop music writer and that's a big change going from you know covering I covered execution in San Quentin I covered plane crashes the train crashes and all kinds of uh you know uh, a lot of bad stuff the negative things and then the switch over to going um you know on tour with bands like you know I went on tour with NSYNC and ACDC and uh um you know Gwen Stefani and found myself uh going to the Grammys and doing all that stuff. So it's a very different, it was a huge shift, but I, that's exactly what I was looking for after after six, seven years covering um, the crime stuff. And you would think that um, th those would be so, those worlds would be so far apart that uh, uh, the, the Phil Spector case would be, as you say, like kind of a, a unexpected melding. But in fact, my crime, uh, clips and 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 uh, uh, all the different things I accomplished on the crime beat helped me get the music job because there was so much crime involving musicians. Uh, you got to remember this is right after this is not that long after Tupac and Biggie 
you know, and you had people like DMX, uh, you know, uh, facing, you know, serious charges and, and uh, all the different things that happened, um, you know, later I covered, you know, covered R. Kelly and, um, you know, Michael Jackson's, and I ended up uh, covering Whitney Houston's death. Uh, I actually uh, wrote the obituary the day that she died. Um, James Brown died on Christmas. And so you're, you know, you want to hear, this is what journalism was like uh, at that time and still is, but slightly different because uh, I had to leave, but it was a uh, 9 a.m. I think on Christmas morning and uh, the kids are just kind of making stacks of gifts and the phone rings, I answer it, it's the LA Times. Like James Brown died and we don't have anything, any, anything ready. So you have to come in and write his life story and find out what happened. On a and it was a Sunday and Christmas, uh. <laughs> and um, I'm pretty sure it was Sunday. Anyways, that was uh, fast forward to about 9 p.m. that night. And I finally got home and I wrote this brilliant, brilliant piece. I, I thought and got a hold of some of the members of his band on the phone and got wonderful de details about uh, his final concert. Um, that you know I thought uh, was worthy. Uh, it, He's a person worthy of that kind of detail and stuff like that. That's why I say it was uh, exciting detail because it's uh, it was good for the overall piece to communicate. Um, but I got home and it was 9 p.m. and dark and there's my son was standing there and he looked up at me and he goes, "Dad, I don't think you ruined Christmas." <laughs> and like, and I'm like, so somebody does. <laughs> yeah, you know, somebody thinks others. Others disagree. Uh, so yeah, that was that was that life. But I was uh, on the music industry. I I switched to the music because I was really ready to not be doing tons and tons of crime stuff, to not be going to the scenes of child drownings and car wrecks, and you know, like, um, and you know, occasionally feeling somewhat like vaguely in danger. You know, I. And had been threatened and stuff on the I don't exaggerate about that but it's just overall stress because I um, my daughter my first child was born in 97 so this is the following year and and you know you just want to do different things yeah but uh, so yeah for, so Phil, Phil Spector I ended up covering the case and, and in fact got uh, for a music writer writing for the entertainment section section had kind of an unexpected um some people they were like wow this guy's really good at this crime stuff but that's you know i've been doing it for six, six years but in, in orange county and this was in la so um one of the things i found out in i think it was the third day story on the the specter case was uh, i had gone to the, i retraced his steps the night of the shooting and i found an interesting detail that police hadn't found and it was um that his first stop was at dan tana's which this restaurant was a landmark on the uh on um in West Hollywood, and I asked who was working, who waited on him. I found the waiter that waited on him, and they said, "Do you guys keep the bills?" And they, he said, "Yeah, you know we do." And they he went upstairs and got the manager, and they dug back through it, and they they found his tab, and um, it was a fifty-five dollar tab, but he had had a, a rum one fifty one drink, mm -hmm. and he had he had uh, had not had a drink in years it had been like five six years so he had a really pretty strong drink uh, and then drank some more after that um but he it was a 55 dollars tab with a 500 dollars tip and wow. uh 
because it's uh, it showed that he'd been drinking and because it showed where he was and what time of night and things like that, the, uh, they ended up being uh, one of the exhibits in the trial. Um, so my story actually, in some small way, became part of that mosaic. And it's, it's a strange feeling to cover a trial like that. It's even a stranger when they're holding up things that, you know, in, in, the, in the room that you, you kind of uh, have some sort of association with, even if it's just a bagel. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, so crazy week. Um, you know, it's, it's funny with all the upheaval in the world, um, I find myself wanting to book guests that are like the guests that we have today. Uh, someone that's very, very smart, very, very informed, um, and, and very, very funny, you know, because, you know, comedy, uh, we, when we were talking to the, the Deadpool writers last week, um, Paul Wernick and Rhett Reese, you know, we were talking about the, the close neighbors that horror and comedy represent, you know, okay. that, because both, I, you know, the more you think about it, both rely for their biggest moment on the arrival of an undeniable truth. And that undeniable truth can be someone jumping out with a knife, I'm going to kill you, because that's the horror of that truth, you know, like undeniable, or someone saying something they're not supposed to say, or saying what everybody's thinking but not saying, or saying the thing that they, they shouldn't be saying because it means something else. Those, those undeniable truths, you know, that's what makes comedy funny and makes horror scary in a way. Um, so, which leads me up to today's guest, uh, Rain Wilson, you know, what a great career he's had. And, um, and uh, he's an interesting guy, don't you think? Oh my gosh, yeah. You know, I had talked, said this about, you know, the Doors drummer, John Densmore, who we had on a couple of weeks ago. It's just like, you know, I grew up watching The Office, which he's probably one of his largest roles he's done. And you kind yeah. of go, man, it'd be cool to meet him. Probably will never meet him, but, you know, that's cool to think, I don't, you know, it would be cool to meet him. And then, you know, you know, 10, 15 years later, here I am face to face with him, talking to him and just chatting. And he was so, he was so, friendly and nice and you know he was he was a true sport when we dropped some surprising uh fun for him to you know run with and yeah i think it was a really great interview that we had with him oh thanks yeah uh, i i think it's it might be our, our best you know it's uh, so i'm really excited about that i thought that last week and uh if you think your best is the newest one each time then that's good that's that's that means you're going the right direction so um we'll see what people think in that surprise yeah you know we he, you can hear it, I think, in his voice in the interview. Um, if you can't, you could certainly see it in his face if you had uh, been on the Zoom call with us. But uh, yeah, we uh, sprung a little bit of a surprise on on Rain. We brought somebody in that he wasn't expecting. and um, But we'll let that just talk for itself when you guys get to it. It's kind of a long interview, so maybe we just jump in. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And without further ado, here is Rain Wilson. So welcome to Mindspace. Uh, I'm Jeff Boucher, your host, and this week's guest, a very funny man, a very talented man, Mr. Rain Wilson. How are you, sir? Uh, I'm well, Jeff. It's good to see you. It's been a little while. It's great to be on your show. Thanks for having Thanks, me. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. Yeah, it has been a while. I was looking at the, uh, when we met, it was for the film Super, which I'm a big fan of. Uh, it's just a tremendous movie. If, if folks haven't seen it, they should track it down. It's such a great cast. Um, and in the story that uh, I wrote about your performance and about the filming, 
uh, my favorite line in it, the one that made me laugh out loud is the one that said, um, according to James Gunn, the director best known for Slither, because <laughs> we can no longer <laughs> say that. <laughs> That's right. At that point, James, um, when we somehow culled together during the middle of the recession back in 2008, um, the money, or nine, something like that, mm -hmm. the, the money to do Super, that's what James Gunn was best known for. He had written Scooby-Doo 1 and 2 right. and directed the masterpiece Slither, but that was it. Um, so uh, he's uh, he's been a little busy since Super. Absolutely. I have to tell you, I, I uh, when I was at the LA Times and doing Hero Complex, uh, the, 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 the blog and everything, and we had this film festival. Uh, one of the, the entries that we had was super, and, and uh, you were super, super nice to come down and join James Gunn and the, the two of you on stage joined me, uh, which I was super happy about. Um, and it made me look so smart because like a month later, he was announced as like the Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, right. Because yep. our guest that year, we had John Carpenter, uh, Leonard Nimoy, uh, and you know, every all the other films were kind of established, kind of uh, part of the catalog. Yeah, but you guys represented the edgy avant garde sort of the, the edgy the, newcomers. Yeah, yes, dangerous. Oh, movie. That was a dangerous movie. That's funny. Yeah, that's great. Well, it's great to you know, Super was an amazing film. I'm really proud of it. It's one of the things I'm most proud of as an actor, as a producer, as a collaborator. And um, I think it just works on so many levels. And um, it's great that all these years later, I mean, it's still, people talk about it. It's a big cult film. People love it. They, you know, they talk about sequels and more in the super universe. And um, obviously the success of James, because uh, we were both early on that James Gunn bandwagon, um, <laughs> has helped keep super alive. But I'm so glad that people get to see it because it really meant a lot. Yeah, yeah, that's nice to hear. I, I'm glad to hear. It. And you shot that. Was that in Austin? Do I remember that right? Or where, where we that? we shot it in Shreveport, Louisiana. Not even close to Austin. I don't know what yeah. I was thinking. Um, the uh, and uh, Kevin Bacon was great in that. Nathan Fillion and and yep. Ellen Page and uh, Liv Tyler. Yeah, exactly. Michael Rooker. Yeah, and you were punching crime in the face. What was what was the catchphrase? Uh, shut up, crime. Shut up, crime. Uh, right. I, I tweeted that at that time just as a standalone without any context and immediately got a DM from John Favreau saying, what does that mean? I keep hearing that. What does that mean? Like, oh, <laughs> something's up. That's cool. And I'm like, well, I can't tell you. Okay, I can tell you. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I thought that was pretty fun. I thought that was pretty fun. And for people that haven't seen it, it's a movie. I tell people it's it's kind of halfway between Greatest American Hero and Donnie Darko. Uh, okay. With a strong okay. showing by Travis Pickle and Taxi Driver. Uh, that's the... That's the. Nice, yes. I've heard the Taxi Driver one before, but uh, Greatest American Hero is... But he actually had powers in Greatest American Hero. To me, there's things you did in that movie that I consider to be powerful. <laughs> you know, Actu actual power, you yeah. Survived having... Okay your head sawed like the top off that's true and that the, is true and the the fickle finger of, of of god touched your brain 
That's right. God touched my. And that was just pre-production. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it must be interesting for you. Uh, I mean, acting is acting, but uh, that oversimplifies it because you you do find yourself in with such a range of different performances and in different types of settings, not just on uh, within the narrative, but in the way you do the job. I think like super. I mean, you guys were shooting that so fast, for instance. I'm sure that's very different rhythm than some other projects and which is also different than television is there one of of the sort of the variety pack that you enjoy the most uh as far as either the type of character or the type of production no i you know i i really enjoy it all i, I love doing independent film mm -hmm. um partially one of the reasons i do a lot of them is i get a chance to play roles interesting roles that i wouldn't normally get to play in an indie film because they're they're riskier and they're going to be like hey it, let's have that guy from the office play a villain or play a dark role or a dramatic role or a or a fucked up role yeah. um and those doors are open when you're doing a film for one million or three million dollars uh that aren't really open if you're doing a 20 or a 50 million dollar movie for but sure. you know i i think uh listen uh i always say television is like it's like a job mm -hmm. like you go every day you're nine to five usually you're six to six but uh you're punching in you know the same people you're there for years you get to know everyone it's great um you're playing the same character they don't really change that much um a film is a much more intense you know one month to three month kind of commitment and in that period of time you're doing one character one story um so there's there's great challenges in that and it's a super lot of fun yeah. uh, but you know i really i really like it all yeah it's interesting so like a movie sounds like an invasion and a tv show sounds like an occupation wow that's good yeah i like that it's like a movie's like the invasion of normandy yeah speaking of dunkirk yeah and uh yeah a television show is you know occupying the demilitarized zone for a decade yeah that was like the office wow that sounds grim <laughs> Maybe it's not grim. um i loved a random the billy eilish uh, office by the way the trivia smackdown that was a, that yeah that was, was fun that was, that was a lot of fun who would have thunk billy eilish was like the the biggest office trivia nut you know and and time. well i mean office the the, the way that it's uh uh connected with people and, and what it represents and for you i know it's just uh, a huge part of your your story and your unfolding career, uh, two Emmy nominations, if I remember right. I hope three, but close. You're close. I, well, I met the off. first two. I wasn't done. I, I was, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, two Emmy nominations leading up to the third. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well done. Well, uh, and that's the toughest category. I mean, you know, historically, you look at the people that win in that category and get nominated. To get nominated in that category is, is really phenomenal. Um, and uh, it's it, it's interesting though you can't put it away in some ways like you it, it's with you and i'm sure some days that's fun and some days it's not and there's a probably a whole bundle of different things but do you find it represents something different to you now than uh when the the shows uh you know signed off i'm obviously it's probably different yeah you know for the office we went through all of these different um modes you know all of these different eras really so when we started, we were the scrappy upstart imitation of the English series. Were they going to work? 
barely hanging on the air. No one was really watching. Got a bunch of bad reviews. Um, and then all of a sudden we were this hit. And from, you know, about halfway through season two through season four or five, we were a big hit show. Um, Steve was one of the biggest movie stars on the planet at the time as well. And, uh, and then we went into that languished period of, you know, seasons six, seven, eight, nine, where we were just trailing off. Of course, all TV shows were trailing off during that time that in terms of their viewership, there wasn't, there were very few like kind of hit shows with, you know, 10 or 20 million viewers. Um, but then, so we were less a lot less we weren't winning any awards anymore and uh people paid less attention to us we're like oh that old that old show mm-hmm. and then we faded off the air and then we were kind of forgotten and then we went through that phase mm-hmm. where we no one was really thinking about the office and god i don't it's hard for me to even put what years that well that was must have been around 2014 to 2017 or 18. no one was thinking about it and then all of a sudden on Netflix, it started creeping up, and I and I noticed like two years ago, three years ago, all of a sudden, wait, I'm getting stopped more than I ever was when we were on TV. Wow. Like, like and more and more requests for Dwight, and um, I'm like, holy shit, this this Netflix thing is for real. And so then we went through that whole renaissance, and now it's on Peacock. I don't know if anyone's watching it on Peacock or if anyone cares that it's over there. So it's. It's it's been amazing going from like we'll never make it to big hit to kind of forgotten washed up has been nobody to big hit again and now considered like this iconic like on this pedestal like one of the greatest TV shows ever um, whole generations have grown up yeah. watching it so it's um it's been cool I don't know what'll happen next from it you know it must be like like for uh like ted knight and people like on barry tyler moore i mean like a, a, the show has now it has that kind of yep. legacy you know uh yep yep uh another, are you comparing me to ted knight i i i, I think that's pretty i feel bad about that third emmy nomination thing so i just I, that's pretty good <laughs> ted knight ted knight he's classic no, I'm not. He's ted amazing. Knight. i mean those guys that's the that's the shit those guys are rock yeah i saw i i like to watch bad television shows uh from the distant past random episodes i try to watch one a week uh, and i go to, oh nice i purely go by guest star uh, oj simpson on dragnet i'm in uh you know uh sammy davis jr on chips again okay uh oh that's fantastic yeah oh it's really good well you know what i hit the jackpot tj hooker leonard yes. nimoy guest stars no Nimoy ex-partners back on the streets in LA chasing a van rapist now those are known schlocky tv shows but have you seen like ones that were canceled like that are truly like shows that we would there's some have forgotten about really weird like the thing I'm fascinated about now is on Roku uh is the Barbara Stanwyck show Oh, Barbara Stanwyck. Never even heard of that. You know, with uh, a great big screen uh, history, Double Indemnity, films like that. Uh, And it was also on Big Valley, you know, it was like a a major part of that show. Uh, Mm. This was in between those eras. And it's, she comes, there's this blank 
room that exists only in Hollywood. It floats in velvet and caked in Vaseline. She comes, she comes out sideways, like she's being glamorous, but comes off looking kind of like the bars of tax lady. And, uh, <laughs> and I am Barbara Stanwyck. Drama is, and she gives this like, just very 1972 Oscar introduction speech that's very full of artiste. And uh, she introduces uh, sort of a moral tale they're gonna tell, usually a murder. And there's four actors usually, and she says their names and she's one of them, Barbara Stanwyck, as if she's just now learning that Barbara Stanwyck's gonna be <laughs> in it. She got cast in it, yeah. Uh -huh. Barbara Stanwyck, one of my favorites. Uh, that's the really weird one because it seems like it's just kind of a, a so they're little theater it's like little theater pieces meets twilight zone kind of standalone dramas exactly with dark shadows and uh that that sort of anthology format um, wow what was weird about those shows is i was watching enter the dragon and john saxon was in it yeah. and who was always i loved him when i was a kid and he passed away recently and then I was IMDBing him and saw that he, there were multiple TV shows he played three or four different characters yeah, on. He was on like Murder, she wrote like four times playing different characters. Like, and, they, and I realized they used to do that a lot oh. in the 70s and 80s, where it's like, like you said, like Sammy Davis Jr. again on Chips, like, <laughs> but playing different characters as if people wouldn't notice. They'd be like, wait, that guy played Mr. Morrison on episode you know, season three, episode seven. Now he's back as a different guy. What? It's creepy. And I think, you know, like they should go back and you could use technology to put certain episodes together in like Love Boat. Like if you have, uh, you know, a Dick Van Patten on there four different times as four different men and he gets the girl every time, he's clearly a serial killer. I mean, you can make this into a movie. <laughs> like these people on this boat, this boat are not paying attention because that guy was here last year, different name, different lady. That's, right, right. that's how my mind thinks. And then sometimes you see people who are uh, destined for other things, like Steve McQueen. I watched the first episode of Wanted Dead or Alive. Ooh, I had never seen it. You know, I, I just not even that aware of it. Uh, okay. And he looks so cool in it. He looks a lot like Woody from uh, Toy Story, which I wasn't expecting. <laughs> and he's got the strangest thing because it's a, it's a rifle, like uh, a mechanism on a, a, a revolver so it's the shortest rifle ever which yeah it's kind of a tough look but the holster's cool uh first episode michael landon's like one of the guest stars and I'm like oh kid don't worry you got a show coming too it's called bonanza you're gonna be the first color show yeah. on tv i talk to my television i have these little conversations with people on tv that are no longer alive so yeah. <laughs> your friends your magical friends yeah you know it's funny um I was gonna ask you, do you, you like surprises, right? You like fun stuff. If it's fun, fun, happy surprises, would you like? Uh-oh. No, I promise. Okay. And if you, okay. if you say no, I, it'll be fine. Okay, I've gotta say yes though. Well, no, cause we'll cut it out of the show. You can say no and we'll just cut it out. Um, <laughs> um, we have a guy, it's a mystery guest who is available right now. And he's someone who, his name in real life is not gonna mean anything to you, but we're not gonna tell you who he is. I was going to see in 20 questions if you could figure out who he is. Oh, sure. Let's try it. Yeah. Let's go for it. Mystery guest. Sounds fun. It is. I'm it. terrible with people's names and I'm probably no, going no, to no. forget. He, I can tell you this. His name is not, he's not known yes. for his performer name. Okay. But when you hear what he did, you will yes. understand. 
I'll leave you okay, at that. Okay. It's fun, right? Good. Let's let's bring him on. Good. Evan, you're gonna do, let's uh, let's cue up the mystery guest. I'm not gonna look at his name or his face. It's like the end of Raiders. Closed. It's Raiders Lost Ark. Don't look. Turning away. It's taking a. It's he's he's connecting now. I, we can still see his name now. Alfred Hitchcock. Hey, don't say. Oh, now it says mystery guest. You can join us. Mystery guest. And, right, okay. Right? Am I going to see his face though? Nope. Ah, okay. Just mystery guest box. Okay. There we go. <laughs> Hi, mystery guest. Hello. <laughs> oh, nice. I like the audio effect. Yes. Well, my sound engineer is uh, putting a special tweak. Ah, I love it. That's some pretty fancy stuff. We uh, we blew the entire season's budget on this, just so you know. Wow, apparently. So now 20 questions to find out who Mystery Guest is? If, if you can do it. Are you going to have this on every one of your Mindspace podcasts? Yes, the only problem is that we're going to use the same person every time. So it, every time, that's it's gonna just going to underline the fact that our guests don't listen to the show. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, mystery Guest, do you work in television and film industry yes sir and mystery guest um uh do you do acting yes okay wow okay i do it and mystery guest have we worked together in a motion picture before not yet have we worked together in a television show yet not yet. Oh, we can count that as one if you want. You could. Oh, okay. Thank you. Yeah. That's kind. Yeah. Um. So I have not worked with this person. Okay. Okay. But what they do. Um. Uh. Do you um. Have you done more than twenty film and television performances? No. Okay. Um. Do you play a certain kind of a role under certain circumstances? Yes. Okay. Do have you ever done stunts? Um I wouldn't consider them stunts. No. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Um I, I give you one little thought that this is a, the answer is it's something that you have been aware of most of your life. It's not something that's new. Okay. Does that help? Like as far as era? Um, no, it doesn't really help me so much. No. Um, uh, do you, mystery guest, do you do motion capture? No. All right. Something I've been aware of. Oh my goodness! I was saying it's, really it's not a new thing necessarily. Right. That's all. Gotcha. Um. Um. Uh, do you, Mister Guest? Do you do stand-in work? No. Um, Mister Guest, do you? Are you? Um, do you have a? a uh, do you have a special set of skills that you are called upon to use um, that very few people have? Yes. Ah, okay. Um, 
uh, hmm, okay, because that could be anything, right? He could be a juggler. He could be make balloon animals. He could be an arch <laughs> professional archer, mm-hmm. right? Gina Davis is an be, archer. I remember that. So yeah, um, uh, yeah. There's lots of different. So less than twenty roles, but in front of the camera, we've not worked together. Special skill is your special skill involve um, sports. Yes. Okay. All right. So he could be, um, we haven't worked together. Um, I think if there was like maybe one role that was particular, um, maybe you could try to figure out that role and that would be the solution to you. One role. That, that's uh, in particular, our mystery guest is known for. Ah. Um, just the nature of his character and stuff like that. So you can ask about the character. And kind of... um, do you play a character who's a, a sports figure? No. Um, hmm. Do you, um, <laughs> does, does your skit, does your special skill have to do with um, uh, violence? Um, it could be considered violent at times. Okay. Hmm. Boy, I, I, I'm, I'm stumped. He could be, he could be a famous trapeze artist, um, or a pole vaulter when they need a pole vaulting actor. Are you known for one role? Yes. Oh, wow. Um, wow. Are you like Doug Jones? Are you Doug Jones? Not Doug Jones. Um, you're not in the wrong. You're not in the wrong territory. Yeah, yeah. I, I figured it's somewhere, somewhere close over there. Um, Ray, how old are you? You're about. I think you're my. Age. I'm 55. Oh, okay, you look much better than I do. I'm, I'm 51, oh, I think. But uh, this is something that uh, this is a, a performer that we would have been watching. Okay. Former, we would have been watching violent sports known for one role. Wow, I really want to know who this mystery guest is. I, I gotta, I gotta give up. I'm sorry, I don't know who this mystery guest no, is. No, no. Do you want to? Um, well, let's see. Uh, he... Saturday mornings. Does that help? Why don't you? It's a Saturday morning person. Saturday morning. In the seventies. Saturday morning in the seventies. Um, was he in, were you in Sigmund and the Sea Monsters? Super close. <laughs> were you in Sid and Marty Croft in one of the? Yes. Oh, wow. See, I told you it was cool. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Um, uh, but Banana Splits was after school. Yeah. I'm trying to think. Um, Let's see, there's uh, Lidsville. There was... Yeah. HR puffin HR puffin, uh, puffin stuff. Which wasn't about drugs. Not at all. <laughs> Little Johnny. No, but wasn't I wasn't in that. <laughs> um okay, I need to know. I'm sorry. I've I I can't I can't figure it out. Right, I, I know that you, you were I'll give you a couple of little extra hints. Um Okay, okay. Prince won his first Grammy for a song that he wrote, but someone else performed. Do you know who that performer was? 
Um, yeah, uh, Sinead O'Connor, nothing compares to you. Before no. that, is before that is an R&B artist. She was the lead singer in Rufus. You know that band Rufus? Uh, okay, I remember, remember Rufus. A, uh, how about a waterfall? Is another hint. Um, uh, Land of the Lost. Yes. Were you a sleet stack? No. no. You were. Um, were you uh, Chaka? Yes. Ding 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 ding. Oh my gosh! <laughs> we got That's Chaka. fantastic. We got Chaka on the phone. Oh my God, that's amazing, Chaka! So nice to meet you. What's your uh, nice what's your real you actual name? Uh, Phil Paley. Phil Paley. Uh, that's amazing. Um, uh, I used to watch Land of the Lost religiously every single weekend. Jeff, <laughs> awesome. how, did, how did you know that, Jeff? You know, because I feel like we have the same things going around in our head, uh, and I just, you know. I always wanted to know what was up with Chaka, and and no no offense, Phil, but I kind of why did you bring Chaka on my show? That's it's fantastic. What would make you think to do that? <laughs> well, you don't remember this, maybe, but when we the first interview you and I did, we met at that museum of Jurassic. What is it? The Jur Jurassic Technology. Yes, yeah, we, and we had tea. Uh, yeah, and mm -hmm. uh, it was such a, a loopy place, and it was so much fun walking around. And I thought, well. You know, if anybody would be willing to, on the spot, be surprised with a terrifying question of, would you like to play 20 questions on in front of the public? I knew it would be you, and I, I appreciate you going for it, because a lot of people won't do that. So I, I hope that yeah. you're not uh, offended that I, I sprung that on you, but uh, I just knew that you would like it in the end. Um, that's fantastic. Uh, Phil, yeah, we used yeah. to... We used to do imitations of you all the time. I remember you going, ta, sa, ta, sa. Did you, while you were jumping on the desk? Yeah, ta, sa, the sa, ta. Uh, Ari, Ari. Yes. Oh, Weera, Ari. That's fantastic. Um, were you, did you, were you in the movie version? I never really saw the movie version. No, uh, I was supposed to have a cameo. I was promised a cameo, and then it never came to fruition. Oh, uh, that's however, terrible. my my co-stars were in the movie, uh, but their parts got cut. But I'm 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 really actually glad that I didn't get a cameo in that movie because it sucked so bad. <laughs> yeah, it was really bad. Yeah, really bad. I was on the set of that movie, uh, and I remember they had to stop the filming because an endangered tortoise started walking across the set and there was a ranger there and he's like you cannot touch it you cannot change its path you can't feed it and this like everybody's sitting there watching this thing go super slow and it was like eleven thousand dollars a minute it was pretty funny and that's okay that's, listen yeah that's when i met listen so, more yeah. importantly more importantly phil yeah. do you still yes. keep in touch with holly from the show <laughs> yes yeah we're uh very close friends, uh, her and Wesley, okay. uh, Kathy Coleman and Wesley Yur. Uh, we do these comic cons around the country, or we did yes. uh, prior to the uh, the big uh, the big change. Yes. But uh, yeah. So um, listen, do you know the story about her of uh, traveling in like Thailand and bumping into the family living out in the jungle, and they had the um uh what are those things called where you you 
you look at the various pictures and they're on a wheel. Um, like a, a Viewmaster? Yeah. Uh, I don't think she's ever been to Thailand. I know that she was invited. She did a book tour and they invited her to, um, uh, God, uh, it's near Australia. New Zealand? So she was there, but she was never in the jungle. I don't okay, think. I heard so. a story a long time ago. I think she told it, and maybe I have it all wrong in my head, that she was like traveling. Maybe it wasn't her. Maybe that was the thing. But she was traveling in Southeast Asia, and someone said, hey, it's you. Come with me. And she's like, what? And she went with this guy and then went back like to his hut. And, and they said, <laughs> we knew you would come. And, and they had a Viewmaster, and they brought it out, and they had one round slide in the Viewmaster, and it was a Land of the Lost one, and it had a picture of her. And they said, we knew you would come because we have this, and we knew we would see you. <laughs> I, I don't know about that story because, I mean, I know that there was a Viewmaster from our show amongst the other cheesy toys that Okay, would you please ask her from me about this story? Sure. Because I, sure. I heard it on some, like, NPR, you know, when people tell true stories about their lives, like NPR, I was yeah. sure it was her, but maybe it was. I'm pretty else. sure that's not legit, but I'll, I'll ask awesome. for sure. Okay, that's awesome. All right, you know, thank you. So yeah. when you started to say, you know, that uh, you and your former cast members uh, that you get together for, in my head, I really thought you were going to say rafting trips because I thought like, <laughs> a land of lost rafting trip would sell tickets. Let me tell you. That, well, hey, that that was in the works actually <laughs> uh, before the pandemic. Oh my god, but that would it, be fantastic. Yeah, we were going to do a camping uh, thing where, like, you know, fans could pay to join us on a camping adventure, and you know, we'd we'd all go camping. Well, it's uh, but it's such a great yeah. show. You know, all those shows were great. I, I I did a story on the Croft Brothers, and and I I thought I'm sure you remember this because it led to a front page story in the LA Times where, in the middle of the interview with the Croft Brothers, who who bicker quite a lot. Um, I, they don't get along. No, no, yeah. no. And one is very no. artsy and gentle and 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 expressive. Sid. And his brother is very, very. He's the agent and uh, kind of. Marty's the businessman. Exactly. Yeah. He's uh, you know, the Sammy Sammy Glick kind of guy. And um, uh, in the, in the middle of the interview, uh, he he says the younger brother or the gentle brother says. You know, I like Jeff. He's a nice boy. I don't think we should we shouldn't lie to him like everybody else. Let's tell him the truth. And his brother's like, "What are you saying? Wait, stop! What did you just say?" He's like, "Jeff, look, we've told people for decades this lie, and I can't take it anymore." And I'm like, "Wait, I don't know if I want to hear this, like, because you know, as a journalist, like, like it's like, a, yeah, yeah, and uh, and what it turns out is that the, for years and years and years, they had promoted themselves as." descendants of the famous puppeteering family of Europe that, that entertained kings in Vienna and the, you know and they invented this whole history that just didn't exist and I was like oh that's fine yeah you know that's that's okay but uh it was it was one of the strangest moments I ever had in an interview because I thought they were going to come to blows over this and I'm like oh my god I'm gonna like take out a cough have a cough <laughs> that's collision. funny oh my god yeah, it's a contentious relationship. You know, Sid um, is now doing like Instagram uh, shows on Sunday where he talks about, he has guests and he does, um, it, they're really fascinating actually. And he's he's a great storyteller. He, you know, he's he's in his 90s yeah. and he looks great. Like, you know, really takes really well, you know, care of himself. 
and has like a super sharp memory. So he talks about, you know, um, all the different stuff that he's done. And, and he may have not entertained kings or, and come from a famous uh, puppetry family, but you know what? His story of what he has done is just as fascinating. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, no. And who he's worked with, incredible. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. And it was a different era in Hollywood too. You know, one of the other things I, I, I talked to uh, like Lee Salters, uh, I know Larry Salters, I should say, I talked to Larry Salters, his dad, Lee Salters, who worked with Sinatra and so many people. Uh, they had all these tricks. One of the things they would call, uh, a bar at the busiest hotel in New York right at happy hour and, and page their client, uh, even though they weren't there, just to have their name mentioned. I, I thought that was so great that they would call <laughs> they call places and have their name in the air and you know, things like that. But um, yeah. But, so, uh, Rain, I want to thank you for uh, having this, uh, the, the uh, uh, being a trooper and going along with this. It and, was fun. And then Phil, thanks, so nice Rain. to meet you. Hope to meet you in person yeah. one day. Yeah, I would love to meet you. And then we're going to bring Phil back a little later and, and continue our chat. But Phil, thank you for doing that. I think it was, uh, we're trying to break new ground here in the podcast universe. And uh, it's, uh, it's awfully good. To I catch love up it. 20 questions, mystery guests. I love it. Absolutely. Well, Ta always happy to be a part of <laughs> Ta -sa. Oganza Bisasa. Wait, that's different. How come the slee stack were so slow? Uh, that's the direction they were given. <laughs> that's why they were so skinny, is because they were so slow. That's uh... they are they were UCLA and USC uh, college basketball players. So they were already like seven feet tall, and then they um, wore these um, platform shoes uh, yeah. on top of it. So these guys were like eight feet tall in these creepy outfits walking around and uh yeah they were they were all awesome but they because they were wearing wetsuits they could only like shoot them for like three minutes and then they'd have to <laughs> get undressed because they were sweating to death oh, that's why they were so slow they were oh my god that's they were, fantastic they were yeah. collapsing that's yeah. what that was they were actually collapsing yeah well nice to meet yeah. you phil thank you thank you phil. nice to meet you too so Ray, thank yep. you again for doing that that's a lot of fun and um you know, we were talking about movies, role you might have one time, other ones with TV might last for years. Uh, with the ones that last, is there an extra challenge in that sort of persistence uh, that you have to either protect the character or, or kind of uh, keep them on a particular path or is it kind of take care of itself? You know, Jeff, that's a great question. <laughs> and I was one time after I'd done House of a Thousand Corpses, I was talking to Rob Zombie about his new album coming out and he said, you know, albums are so tricky because you want to push yourself, you want to stretch yourself. But if you stretch yourself too far, then your fan base kind of goes, wait, what the hell is this? I don't want to listen to this. I want to listen to a Rob Z Zombie album, you know? Yeah. But if you just do, if you give them a Rob Zombie album, they're like, he's doing the same shtick over and over. So it's this constant um, balancing act. And I think that's, if you're on a TV show, it's that way. Like you you've got to keep it in a certain parameter. That's what the fans expect. That's what, you know, a television show is week in, week out. The characters go through something and they don't change, yeah. you know, yeah. they can't, you can't. I mean, ultimately was Archie Bunker more sensitive by the end of All in the Family? He was a little bit more aware than when he started, yeah. but um, you lose. And then they did Archie Bunker's place, of course. And then all of a sudden he was like, you know, adopting little African-American kids. And he was like, Mr. Sent, he was just a little bit gruff, but- um, Yeah, he turned into Mr. Uh, Hooper. What happened? Yeah, yeah. But um, 
So uh, it's that balance, uh, you know, uh, for for roles that you do over a long period of time. You you keep, you've got to stay true to the character, what the fans expect. But at the same time, you don't want to always just play the same thing. You know, you want to be in different situations. You want to have a, a different romance or a different reaction than people might think that you would have. Um, you want to play some different colors and find some nuance that you haven't played before, but all within this certain kind of realm. Yeah, I guess that's a that's the spooky art of it is uh, you know figuring out all those different uh, you know uh, imperatives and, and where it takes it. Uh, mm. One of the things you did with uh, uh, is with Star Trek is you took on a character that someone else played uh, and brought him back to the screen. And it was one of the great characters in the original Star Trek run, Mud, you know, like who, there's not that many recurring or uh, uh, revisiting villains in Star Trek, but there's only like two or three. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. Did you hold on, did you look at that uh, original performance and use that as a, a starting point or did you just go with the script and the, and the new iteration because it's so, so much of it's, you know, well, you know, the great thing about Dwight was that there was a magnificent performance by uh, Mackenzie Crook, who did the original English series, mm -hmm. to borrow from, steal from, be inspired by. And it's the same thing with Harry Mudd. You know, he, Roger Carmel uh, gave an amazing performance where he was charming, ridiculous, and kind of dastardly and also strangely threatening at the same time. Yeah. And... Um, so it was more like inspired by the great Roger Carmel rather than like specifically Carmel-esque. Yeah. I think in in the modern Star Trek universe, he needed to be kind of more villainous and threatening than than buffoonish. Yeah. Although there's a little bit of a buffoon there. Yeah, that's a good um, point. Yeah, he is yeah. he's so, he's definitely softer in the in the original. He's got a little topal in him. Yeah, yeah, he does. Good, nice reference. Uh, yeah, Fiddler on the Roof reference. Uh, Fiddler um, on the Federation. I don't know. Fiddler on exactly. deck. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it was a joy to be a part of that. Um, uh, hopefully someday I, I can come back. They'll bring me back in some some way, shape, or form. Yeah, we'll see. yeah oh, I'm sure they will. And what a great uh, group of people, too. You know, Alex Kurtzman and all the folks that work on, on that series. Yeah, it's really yeah, great. Absolutely. Yeah. The way they, they do things. As far as you know, kind of icons, one of my favorite things that you've done is play Lex Luthor. Now, Lex Luthor, and as a voice actor, you, you brought this character to life, and, and uh, Lex is a, is a tricky character because there's so many different types of Lexes. There's the businessman, there's the scientist, and all this, and the character's been on the screen. He's been, you know, handled by, like, Gene Hackman and Kevin Spacey and um, a lot on um, Smallville, uh, Michael Rosen, Rosenbaum. Yeah, Rice, Michael Rosenbaum. Michael Rosenbaum was fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, yep. what, what was that like for you? And, and were you a comic guy, comic book guy growing up? You know, I don't know how to say this without insulting comic book people. So I'm going to say it actually, and I'm going to say it and just straight up insult comic book readers. Bring it. I was totally into comic books until I was about 11 years old. Yes. And then I realized that there were these things that you could take the first word out of that comic and there were these things called books. So that's like a comic book without the pictures? Right, so you just take the text from a comic book and you just put it in paragraph form and there's no pictures. And um, so basically all this stuff I was reading about in comic books 
then I segued to reading fantasy and science fiction okay. books when I was like 11 or 12. So I just didn't go back at that point because I didn't need the pictures. I wanted the stories, you know, I wanted, you know, I loved Thor when I was growing up and bought, you know, Thor every week, wow. local 7-Eleven. Um, but then Thor is just fantasy. So when I found Conan the Barbarian, I was like, oh, forget Thor. This is way cooler. Yeah. You know, it's um, so that's basically what happened is I turned into a sci-fi fantasy geek. Okay. And then Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, okay. There's so many people into Dungeons and Dragons these days. And um, so many people that were in, into it before who were now kind of in Hollywood uh, and, and kind of reconnecting with it. It's kind of fun to see new generations connect with it. The, uh, the thing I didn't get about Thor is why does he talk like a, a Shakespearean summer stock actor? Uh, <laughs> shouldn't he be more like the Swedish, Swedish chef? I mean, he should be like, yumpin' yiminy, I'm going to hit you with my hammer. <laughs> That's a sacrilege. How dare you? I, I dare. I, I'm sorry. I apologize to everyone. But yeah, you have fantasy novels uh, and, and sci-fi novels. I, I, I actually did the same thing. I kind of went away from comics. And you know what brought me back was uh, someone handed me um alan moore's swamp thing and that that brought me back oh nice you know yeah um and watchmen and, and stuff like that yeah the, the 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 graphic novel kind of comic that was kind of next level um you know watchmen was really blew my mind when it first came out yeah i mean i, I didn't know that such a thing was possible yeah and then um lex luther did you he actually gene hackman wasn't the first guy to play him he was in a the Superman serials in the fifties, but they didn't reveal his name until the last episode. So everybody doesn't realize it. Um, he was called Adam man for the, the whole beginning of it. So uh, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Random. Did you see John Cryer's uh, Lex Luthor and, and would you guys have a street fight over it? I, well, the only street fight I'd have with Cryer is that he, he beat me for that Emmy that you were talking about at the beginning of the I show. I forgot that. Sorry. The third time, the third time I was nominated for an Emmy, John Cryer won for two and a half weirdos. <laughs> Bastard. Like I heard, I didn't see his Lex. I heard he was great. I heard from a numerous sources that he did a fantastic job with it. Yeah. And it's, um, do you, do you like Lex as a scientist or more? Is it just sort of a tycoon kind of earth trampoline uh, kind of Legomania. Well, I think for for me, what draws me to Lex is that um, it's a little bit of the hairy mud, you know. He's it has he has a great sense of humor, super smart, sharp. Um, he can be a little bit, dare I say, like goofy sometimes. Mm -hmm. Doesn't take anything seriously, um, and uh, and yet is, you know one of the most you know malevolent forces in human history at the same time but well no malevolence is the wrong word because he's not evil it's more narcissism and ego than it is like i want to kill everyone you know it's more about how can i prove i'm the smartest and that i'm the best and i'm better than superman and that i'm the richest and um there's a and that's just super fun to play with as an actor yeah yeah i'll bet uh and uh superman doesn't really have that many bad excuse me he doesn't have that many great bad guys it's he's he's got a surprising shortage of villains compared to like spider-man mm. or batman right millions um your career started with galaxy quest big screen career if i remember right is that right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's, right. and then right on the uh following that was that um 
Almost Famous? Same summer I shot Galaxy Quest and Almost Famous. Wow. Um, what a, what a... Two classic movies. Yeah. And um, I had small roles in both of them, but, you know, just super cool to be involved in both those films. And, and both of them have a special uh, resonance with fan culture. You know, uh, Almost Famous is about a fan becoming part of the, the, the rock and roll dream. And, and Galaxy Quest is about uh, actors becoming part of the fan dream of real you know, here it is 21 years later after shooting those films, and I, that's the first time I put that together. I don't you put that together for me. Thank you. I never even thought of that. So when you go to They're these about fan cultures, the, you're, yeah. the, you're native. I mean, that's, you started with entertainment that was not only for fans, but it was about fans. That's right. That's right. And that the the fake shooting at that fake Comic-Con, which was pretty pretty new. You know, people weren't really talking about Comic-Con type of things and doing actors doing signatures for money and whatnot and we shot that in 99 yeah absolutely it, it was great and the great alan rickman uh, um just then that cast was so fun and, and those movies yeah. age very very well those movies age very well yes both of them hold up absolutely yeah is there um i i know the roles weren't big but uh your eyes must have been big because of uh this the point in your career you were is there a fun snapshot moment on either of those sets, uh, either an interaction? With somebody <laughs> or, uh... There is. So for Galaxy Quest, um, I was supposed to have a much larger role, but I had also done a TV pilot, one of the world's worst TV pilots ever made called The Expendables. This is not the movie with uh, Jason Statham or whatever. Yeah. This was... Um, uh, called The Expendables, and it was about two wisecracking androids um, that are built in a lab that like to watch television, and then at night they sneak out and fight crime. Mm. Um, and it's just horrendous on every level. You would love it, Jeff. <laughs> we gotta track it down out there. It's out there. It used to be on YouTube, and then they took it down. Wow. Um, and so they they whittled my part down in galaxy quest and um because just in case the pilot got picked up i would have to go into production on it uh -huh. and that would conflict with some dates on the movie because the movie was shooting through the summer Bitter. so um the uh uh my my biggest scene in galaxy Quest was actually cut it's on the dvd you can see it on youtube and it's with tony shalhoub in the engine room and there's these nerdy aliens he's who are asking him about the engine drive because he's supposedly the inventor of the engine drive yeah. the beryllium sphere it's called wow. and my character has this monologue which is like um sir the beryllium sphere when when conjuncted with the uh amaryllth, amaryllth uh drive capacitor has a, a it had all this technical gobbledygook in yeah. it and i was supposed to ask him this question and of course he's like uh yeah i don't know huh. <laughs> you know it's it's very funny yeah. um they ended up cutting this the scene of course and but and i memorized it i recited it in my car on my way in and kind of knew it and then when i got there this is my first big movie part i was so nervous because there's sigourney weaver yeah. alan rickman like Sam Rockwell, all of these people standing there and it's just me and I just couldn't keep the line in my head. And I, it, I just, I was sweating, I was tense and it took me like 
fortunately on like take four or five, I was able to get it out. And that's the take that you see. And you can see me going, sir, the beryllium sphere has a lux capacitor, uh, you know what I mean? And uh, you can see the just the anguish uh, in my head around it. And it was, it was really scary. And that's when I kind of realized like, oh, if you're going to be an actor, and you're ever going to memorize anything like technical gobbledygook, you have to have it down stone cold beforehand. Yeah, you have to be able to do it like during a traffic accident. It has to be like, you know, reflex memory. Like it's yes, because it, anything will take you off your game. So but uh everyone was very lovely it was it was a great um it was a great experience totally i felt the most there's two things i've seen on movie sets that made me feel really bad for an actor and it was one was in um that movie um man of steel with uh, uh the actor who played uh, uh michael shannon yes michael the fantastic michael shannon the, the wonderful michael yep. shannon so michael shannon is trapped under some machinery and he has to say kal you are the codex and and the technology of crypto then it's you know this whole thing and he had to say and you know it was like i think it was like 32 times and and he was trapped under this machinery and i was just thinking he was like trapped under the script trapped under this machinery and just like saying these words that don't really mean anything and, <laughs> and I have, and, but never you know going off but i have the tape from that day because i recorded because i was on set it's just like one whole side of the tape is just him saying the same thing over and over and over and over and over <laughs> that's like groundhog's day yeah 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 so i'll say the perils of perils of the acting biz indeed yeah the other one was when brad pitt washed under his arms and then licked a towel that he had just used underneath his arms and dumped into water on the set of World War Z to add authenticity to a scene that was never used. Ooh, ouch. That was bad. Yeah, so. ouch. Is there um, yeah. a physical requirement that you've had for a role, either like uh, suffering because of your position or eating something or doing some strange thing while you're delivering a line that you remember made it particularly challenging even more? Um. That's a great question. I would, unfortunately, would take nothing pops to mind immediately. But one of the things that drives me crazy, and maybe your fans will back me up on this, is when actors have eating scenes, they never eat. Right. It's very rare to see actors actually eating in eating scenes. And there's a good reason for that, because they have to, you're doing multiple takes from multiple angles, you get really stuffed. The food isn't the best. They have to reset the food each time. But the problem is, is you could tell they're just pushing peas and mashed potatoes around on the plate with their fork and kind of lifting up their fork, but not. And I was always like, no, if there's an eating scene, I'm fucking eating. I'm going to eat. <laughs> and I always like when you see Dwight with the pancakes with Jan at the diner, like anytime I get an opportunity to like have food in my mouth and be acting with big chunks of food in my mouth, I'm going to take it. And um so multiple times I have, you know, choked on food, spat out food, gotten just nauseous from eating 27 hot dogs that day. Um, but I love it. I think it's really important because I think there's something really fun when an, when you watch that on screen, there's something really exciting. Like, wow, he's really eating. Yeah. He's really actually eating that sandwich. And I often ask, I remember for Harry Mudd, I asked for one scene where I could have a sandwich and I'm sitting in the captain's chair, just gnawing on it and 
you know, went through like 12 cheese sandwiches. Yeah, you're right, because people don't eat. It's just like driving. They don't look where they're driving. They drive like this. Like they're talking, looking at the Yeah, they're just having the scene and they're just, yeah. And, and like if you drove the way Denzel Washington drives in any movie, there would be, you would be in prison for manslaughter. <laughs> <laughs> like be, he's killing millions of people. But uh, the food thing is good. It, uh, I remember watching Philip Seymour Hoffman performances when he, the way he would change his breathing in, in scenes because people often don't change their breathing when they're talking. Mm. Uh, and he would always change his physical state breathing in a way that made it seem so realistic. And, and the food, I, I realize, is another nuance like that. You're exactly right. Movies where you remember people eating violently or kind of shoveling because you don't see it very often. It's always like kind of staggering because you're usually looking in their mouth too. Just mm. so. Yeah, um, yeah. That's great. Uh, you do so many different things. Uh, I, I, I so admire the stuff that you've done on climate change. I think your YouTube series was just amazing. If people haven't seen it, they really should because the community. Yeah, an idiot's guide to climate change is on the Soul Pancakes YouTube channel. Yeah, yeah. And Soul Pancakes in general, uh, and, and all the things that you've done with that, and your podcasts on uh, spirituality and, and, and for faith uh, interacting with creativity. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's admirable stuff, sir. It, it's just one thing is I was going to ask you is with the like we look at the the cast of the office like working together and stuff what what have you learned through the years on all all your different work is there an insight of two you have about collaboration that something that you know you've sort of picked up about uh maybe you missed earlier in your career or something that uh you you, you value about uh the best way to interact with your colleagues or improve the way that you um work off of each other well, um, I come from the theater. I know that sounds just, that's like, that sentence sounds incredibly pretentious, even just saying that. I come from the theater, <laughs> but it's true. I was trained in the theater. I always thought I was going to be a theater actor and doing Shakespeare and stuff like that. Huh. And, uh, and, and theater is very collaborative. And I always think that the best work comes from collaborativeness, yeah. you know? Um, and that's how Greg Daniels ran the office. Like if, if you, anyone had a better idea for a camera angle or a prop or a line, he was open to it. And he was, he was not afraid to say, mm, no, <laughs> I'm gonna do it the way it is. Um, but he always says like, listen, in the editing room, whatever's funniest wins. Yeah. So if there's an improvisation and it's funnier than what's in the script, then that wins. Yeah. Um, if the director has an idea, then that wins. Um, so I think that's one of the reasons that the show is so good and so lasting is that there's a lot of nuance, you know, there's stuff that's really broad, like absurdly broad, mm -hmm. just like slapstick, Jim Carrey broad. Right. And then there's stuff that's as subtle as, as paint drying. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so you got all this stuff in between because you've got the comedies coming from different people and, um, and especially the editors, the editors really made, really made the show. Dave Rogers was our main, our main editor. Um, and uh, they really made the show as well. Those transitions so, and juxtapositions are just tremendous. Last thing. Silences, I, yeah. Would you mm -hmm. ever consider, or are you intrigued at all by uh, a one man performance? Like I've seen a few of them and I always thought it was kind of a curious thing. You know, like I saw one that just mesmerized me. I, I was shocked by how much I liked it. Um, but I've seen more than a few others that didn't work. Is that 
Is that, uh, what do you think of it? You mean like a one person show? Yeah, I saw like Patrick Stewart do Christmas Carol. He did like 32 characters and- uh, Oh, nice. My head exploded. I thought it was so good, but then I've seen other people, I don't wanna say who do single person shows and I found it to be too stunty and, and kind of uh, uh, dull. Well, I actually did one uh, at the Geffen Playhouse uh, about five years ago now it wasn't playing a bunch of different characters though. It was just a monologue by one character and it was a play, it's a play by a well-established New York playwright. It's called Tom Payne. Um, and it's uh, it's called Tom Play Payne, a play about nothing by Will Eno. And it's this very strange monologue, this guy talking to the audience, but we actually got to film it. And so there's a film version. It's like on Broadway, there's some Broadway streaming service that it lives on. Yeah. Um, and uh, you can see it there. And actually, I'm very proud of it. It's it's really cool. And I'm so glad we got to film the performance because you put so much work into doing theater. And then if you don't film it, it just doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. You could talk about the great play that you saw, but if it doesn't exist on uh, celluloid, then uh, it's just gone forever. So in the forest, right? Yeah, but but I, I yeah, I'm up for doing something like that. Maybe a, I'll check that do out. a one one person. Uh, you know, in my retirement, if I'm like broke, I'll do a one person office episode. So I'll play all the characters in the office. That'd be great. Do uh, the overnight shift. It's just one guy. He's just arguing with himself all night. Uh, no, play all the characters. Do Michael Scott oh. and Kevin and Pam and and just jump around and, and play them all and get, you know, you know, when I'm really desperate and pathetic and drugged out in my later years. I think it's good to have something in the bank. That's great. Right? <laughs> it's good to plan. Of course, now actors have cameo. So cameo can pay a lot of bills for people. So if things get really desperate, I'll go over to cameo and record uh, messages for folks. That's terrific. Well, it's fantastic, man. Well, what a treat to talk to you. And it's so nice of you to join us today. Uh, and uh, uh, again, uh, congratulations on all your pursuits and, and, uh, and thanks for the really smart stuff you put out in the world, you know? Thanks, man. I appreciate it, Jeff. You've always put out smart stuff in the world, and uh, appreciate you and your writing and your championing all the all the geeky, nerdy, wonderful, delicious stuff out there. So thanks for your terrific work, and um, it's a pleasure talking to you. All right, man. Thanks again. Take care. All right. So long. You know, it was so funny to hear Rain <laughs> Rain's uh, voice change when he found out who. You know, the mystery guest was is Philip Paley. He goes, wait, Chaka? And he was like, we used to pretend to be. He was like so shocked and so amazed at who it was. Yeah. Kind of like yeah. what I said in the beginning. He probably never thought he would ever meet him, you know? And here they are face to face. So That's right. That's right. He had his, uh, you, and you had your Chaka moment with him. Yeah, exactly. It, it, I'll tell you, I, I, I was sweating a little. I was tugging at the collar because I felt like that wasn't going terrific. And then I was so happy. My my worst fear was that he's going to say, "What the hell is a chaka?" Right off the <laughs> you know, um, which would have been like, Ew. but uh, uh, the fact that he that was his reaction, like he he was really he's wide eyed. He's like, "Wait, are you telling me that's?" True? <laughs> um, and do you like? By the way, for anybody who's wondering what the hint was, that, what the hell I was talking about, I was trying to give him a really hard hint first. Prince, the great Prince, the late great Prince. Um, his first Grammy that he got uh, wasn't for a song that he performed, but it was one that he wrote and someone else performed, uh, and it was Chaka Khan. 
So that's oh, what I was trying to get at. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> Chaka Khan was the lead singer of Rufus. I mentioned the band Rufus. Chaka Khan, Chaka Khan, I got really uh, confused and I thought you were saying that Prince had written the intro to Land of the Lost. So while you guys were talking, I was like researching all this stuff. I was like, what is he talking about? But no, that makes uh, you know, way more sense. Too, too deep. Of a, it's one of those hints that actually ends up making the thing harder, not easier. Hints are supposed to make it easier, not harder. So I'll get better at that. But we, yeah, we didn't, we didn't really try that before. So that's I was about to chime in and say, you know, Rain, you're looking a little lost, but then I didn't want him to think I was insulting him. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, yeah. but yeah Nothing. so i know you're old but you're not a dinosaur <laughs> yeah exactly right. but yeah i think you know more things to come you know he's got a lot of stuff cooking as expected um and we might see philip paley again in the future absolutely absolutely um i i, I guarantee it we're gonna have him back in on i think maybe we might have uh let's see if we can find some other you know uh, famous furry faces. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. We'll see what we could see what we could do. Maybe famous child stars of the, the 70s or something like that. But um, let's see what's left. You're almost out of here. I can't believe it. So what's uh, we got one last last thing. Order yeah, we got we got a final thing before we're for uh, we're done for the day or for the week. We have uh, the essential shelf. And I'm curious. Yeah, you know, it's been a long episode. So I want to keep people too long. <laughs> but uh, this week it's it's a great one it's by chris ware it's his first um you know amazing breakthrough uh jimmy corrigan the smartest kid in the world and it's a fascinating book to me it's a fascinating um artist the way that he expresses things he presents these images that are very very different than the traditional superhero comics and uh storytelling is done almost like a informational graphic sometimes. Like there'll be uh, pages in this book where you'll see what looks almost like a family tree. Uh, and it is, and it'll connect how these people met and whose parents are who, and um, all while telling a story that is a non-traditional story as well. It's, a, it's about a, a, a life of a man whose uh, anxiety about not being liked uh, whose anxiety about himself and his place in the world and his distance from others, what kind of sh shape that has when uh, it lasts a lifetime. Um, I don't want to say too much about it it's, as far as the plot and stuff like that, but it's, it's, a, it's, it's a monumental work and it's got a sort of very hushed, um, powerful you know, emotion throughout and it packs it into scenes uh, through this artwork that's, uh, again, it's very, very crisp and, and clean. There's no line that's uh, unplanned and everything is represented uh, economically. It's almost like the early Char uh, Charles Schulz Peanuts. If you think about the early uh, Charlie Brown Snoopy cartoons in the paper, uh, the simplicity of the circles and the lines, it, it, was, it was deconstructing art and making it almost uh, like a jazz composition as opposed to the really intricate illustration and the ornate detail of stuff like, uh, you know, Prince Valiant or the other cartoon adventure strips that have been so popular. You know, uh, this is in that tradition. And with uh, a character who, you know, the title character kind of looks like a, a grown up Charlie Brown sometimes. <laughs> um, it's, uh, it has some of the same attributes as the best work that Charles Schulz did in that it's um, it's emotional and it's unlikely 
and it's um, it's slightly off kilter, but also almost universal um, and and melancholy. There's a real there's a real otherness to it. You know, you think about uh, when you read Charlie Brown, a lot of them aren't funny. They they're they're wry. They're like wry observations and and kind of uh, uh, bittersweet uh, reflections of the world. And this book fits. Uh, right to that, I give this my highest recommendation. Uh, I put up there uh, with uh, you know Watchmen and, and Dark Knight Returns and uh, Mouse and all the other great you know uh, signature works uh, in graphic novel form, and um, uh, it's uh, it's rare to see something that has uh, it's packed so much emotion, um, but and is. <clears throat> Uh, wrought with so much intellect. Very that's cool. Speaks, yeah, that's this week's entry in the essential shelf. And boy, I, I hope I didn't make it sound too much like homework because it, it's really cool. <laughs> and I just, just so our listeners know, you know, can we get the title one more time? Of course. It's uh, Jimmy Corrigan, Smartest Kid in the World. And uh, it's by Chris Ware. Um, and, you know, it was originally published uh, in periodical form. And so it's collected up in into a, a collected a collected anthology of it. Um, and it's been done, collected in several forms. I know there's a really nice hardcover, then there's a big giant great hardcover and a soft cover. So there's different versions of it. But um, if you Google it and look at the images, you'll see what I'm saying about the, uh, the, the world it creates. You know, like Stanley Kubrick, in a way, his, the way that uh, it frames humans makes them feel like they're almost in a petri dish like it, it it's it, it clinically examines the human soul just like uh stanley kubrick's sort of the way that he uses a camera framing um and uh i think you'll like it i think you'll like it a lot but uh speaking of smart kids mr evan cop thank <laughs> you so much for being part of this mind space and helping me find the space in this mind of course yeah I was telling you, I think earlier this week, it's a little strange because, you know, both of us have been with this project since, you know, it was born. And so it's like seeing your kid off to college every single time I think of something else I've been texting you, like, did you think about this? So we got, you know, we got to make sure we have this. And at some point you kind of just have to say, it's all going to be okay. It's all going to be okay. Where's the keg? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But Jeff, man, it was really fun working with you. Um, this is not the end of our you know, work relationship. I'm sure our paths will cross once again. And then hopefully when this pandemic ends, we can actually meet in person, Absolutely. which is the funniest part of our work relationship is that we've never actually met in person. Yeah, exactly. We're like Charlie's angels and Charlie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I get to be the angels though. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's fine. That's fair. Right. How, how shocked would you be if you met me and I was only two feet tall? Uh, you know, I would be very shocked. I would be very shocked. I, I, I would not anticipate that. Oh, well, I just want to leave you with that, you know, the curiosity, but. <laughs> I would think that you were beaten down by life. That's why. <laughs> well, uh, Godspeed to you. And uh, for our listeners out there, uh, we're, I'm coming back and he'll be listening and he'll come back, but we hope for sure that you also come back. Yes, definitely. Um, and I don't have anything really, you know, inspirational to say, but just sign off. Peace out. Peace out. <laughs>